Thanks for joining us on this week's episode where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 76th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. So the 76th Academy Awards. Yep. The films of 2003. I don't know if now's the time to say it, but just for everyone listening, I had a real tough time with this year. (laughs) Getting that out of the way up front. Yeah. Maybe you'll listen to this and say, Kelsey, you you really, you missed the mark. You got into the weeds. I don't know what happened. I don't know if I'm in a mood. I had, I struggled with a couple of these nominees in a very real way. I think that's fair enough. I can't wait to hear the details of your journey. But before we get into that, we should do our usual, what was happening in the world in 2003? It was not a great year in America and several parts of the world, (laughs) but we will get into that. First of all, in world health news... This was the year of the SARS, or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, outbreak, which people thought was going to be, you know, a huge global pandemic and then ended up kind of fizzling out because the disease was too deadly Mm -hmm. to spread. (laughs) So that was an interesting, yeah, health panic situation. I'm sure it seems cute looking back yeah now that we've lived through an actual global pandemic but people were freaked out about it at the time the other major thing that was taking up a lot of space in america was the beginning of the iraq war so Mm, never heard of it what's that (laughs) so the united states invaded iraq in march after we had apparently slam dunk intelligence that there were weapons of mass destruction according to always a good phrase to be using in your analysis yeah, cia director george Tenet. but you know i guess it, it went pretty fast because by may 1st george w bush was giving a speech on a aircraft an carrier. aircraft carrier yeah with a big mission accomplished banner behind him so we wow we did less than two months and then yeah. and then we left and it was over right well no and also we hadn't really achieved the mission, which was to topple Saddam Hussein's government. He was finally captured in December. Not out, right? Okay, no. Uh, <laughs> it turns out we're still there. <laughs> Even though I-, I feel like I heard that the war ended in 2011. I believe it did, did officially end, but 20 years later, we are still there. Dear God. <sighs> Oof. Way to go. American foreign policy. Yeah, pretty bad. Other interesting things were happening in the world. There were like a ton of countries joining the EU this year. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of exciting. It was the growth period for the EU. Yeah. And we now are leading into hopefully not the collapse period of the EU, but we'll see. We'll find out. There was not like necessarily fun news. This is this is positive news. Certainly this piece that we're ending on, which was the Human Genome Project was completed. So we sequenced to like 99.99% the human genome, which is pretty cool. Super exciting. We're still, you you know, reaping the rewards. Benefits? I don't know if that's the benefits of that in our research today. So figuring out how to use that to end disease, possibly. Excellent. That's certainly good news. Great. All right. Well, let's get into what the nominees were from the 2003 Academy Awards or I guess the 2004 Academy Awards. 
the Academy Awards that celebrate the films of 2003. Exactly. So to begin, we have The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, which is the final installment in the three-part adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's seminal fantasy epic, starring Elijah Wood, Sean Astin, Viggo Mortensen, among others, directed by Peter Jackson, written by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and Peter Jackson. It was nominated for 11 Academy Awards and in a the Oscars got it wrong first, won all 11 of the Academy Awards. So I will list them for you now. Best Picture, Best Director for Peter Jackson, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Film Editing, Best Makeup, Best Original Score, Best Original Song, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Visual Effects. Up next, we have Lost in Translation, a dramedy about two lonely Americans that connect while in Tokyo. Stars Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson, directed by Sofia Coppola, written by Sofia Coppola. It's nominated for four, and it won one. Best Original Screenplay. Third, we have Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, a high seas war drama about a British naval vessel that must capture a superior French frigate during the Napoleonic Wars. It stars Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany, directed by Peter Weir, written by Peter Weir and John Colley, nominated for 10 Academy Awards, and it won two Best Cinematography and Best Sound Editing. Next up, we have Mystic River, a crime drama about three childhood friends that have drifted apart. Their lives intersect as adults after one of their daughters is murdered. It stars Sean Penn, Tim Robbins, and Kevin Bacon. It's directed by Clint Eastwood, written by Brian Helgland. It's nominated for six and won two. Best Actor, Sean Penn, and Best Supporting Actor, Tim Robbins. And finally, we have Seabiscuit, a sports drama about the undersized racehorse Seabiscuit and the three men who make him a champion. It stars Tobey Maguire, Chris Cooper, and Jeff Bridges, directed and written by Gary Ross. Nominated for seven Academy Awards, it won zero. You know, we also like to talk about what was big at the box office that year. Uh, the top five highest grossing films of the year were number one, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Number two, Finding Nemo. Number three, The Matrix Reloaded. Number four, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. And number five, Bruce Almighty. I will say this is a big year for movies that have colons in the title. Too true. We got Pirates. We got Lord of the Rings. We got Master and Commander. Yeah. We love a colon. We also at this point would normally talk about notable achievements, innovations, uh, just quirky news in the world of film. But honestly, not a lot sprung to mind in terms of notable achievements obviously lord of the rings you know was doing some interesting technical stuff but we'll probably end up talking about that when we talk about the first lord of the rings film so we'll save it for then and other than that i mean there is a, a notable performance that we will get to later because we have the youngest ever mm. nominee in the best actress category up until that was later supplanted by quivon Janae wallace for Beasts of the Southern Wild, yes. is what that movie is called. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we'll, we'll get to it later. I don't want to spoil that conversation. So what one, of course, was The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. You know, I don't think we tried to, we found too much about the consensus, but it did win 11 out of 11 awards, which would seem to indicate. Which feels like a consensus in and of itself. Yeah, and it was sort of a victory lap for the series. So it hadn't, you know, Fellowship Two Towers. I think they both won a couple of awards. Technical and then, things. Yeah, and then... This was the year that the trilogy wrapped up, and so they kind of gave it all of the things at this point. In terms of historical consensus now, I don't know that it shifted too much in general. I, I don't hear people talking about most of these movies very often. Yeah, a lot of them have sort of faded away. So I guess people aren't super mad about it. 
No, I don't think in general. But are we mad about it? Maddie, are you mad uh, that this film won Best Picture? I mean, we'll get into it. I'm of mixed opinion, but I've had many years to make my peace with it. So I'm going to go with no, I'm not mad. Okay. How about you? I'm absolutely not mad, but we'll talk about it. Indeed. For the other nominees, would we have been mad about it? Would you have been mad if Lost in Translation won? Yes. You? Yeah, same. Okay. How about Master and Commander? Yes. I think yes. Though, again, we'll get into it. Mystic River, would you have been mad? Yes. Same. And Seabiscuit? Yes. Yes, same. Okay. We'll start with our thoughts about the double yes, we would have been mad about it in alphabetical order, I guess. So let us begin with Lost in Translation. Tell us about Lost in Translation. So Bill Murray plays an American actor who is in Tokyo to film a commercial for a, a liquor brand that he is advertising and, you know, is feeling pretty creatively unsatisfied. And then it, the other main character is Scarlett Johansson, who is married to this a photographer who is in Tokyo on assignment. And she's just there sort of to go on the trip because she doesn't have anything else going on. She's recently graduated with a philosophy degree and can't figure out what she wants to do with her life. And so she's just sort of living in this hotel while her husband goes off and does his job. And she's left wondering what she should be doing with her life. The two of them run into each other in Tokyo. They're very lonely. They find this interesting connection with each other in unconventional friendship. But then by the end of the movie, of course, they both go off to their own lives again and are left to just sort of think about what their time together meant. There's funniness, obviously. It's Bill Murray. It's, um, I don't know, how would you describe this film? <laughs> I think he did a good job. I think that's what okay. it is. Thank you. <laughs> so what are your thoughts about Lost in Translation? I hated this movie. I wow. have very rarely been as irritated by a film as I was by this film. So I kind of, I do have like a lot to sort of unpack about why I think this movie irritated me. I don't know if we want to dive into that or you have well, sure. quicker thoughts. I don't think any of my comments about this movie are going to come off this way, but on the off chance they do, I do want to start off by saying like, Depression is real and there is no rational reason that someone has to be depressed. Everything could seemingly be going well in your life and yeah. you could be totally depressed. So and I you could uh, still have a chemical imbalance <laughs> right. that makes you depressed. Yes. Because Scarlett Johansson's character is clearly depressed. But I think part of the reason I found the movie irritating is because I think in theory this is something I should like. I generally love fiction that has themes of loneliness and isolation and trying to find meaning in existence. So like, particularly I think in literature, that's one of my favorite themes for something to explore. You know, like speaking of loneliness in Japan, right? We just recently for a book club read um, Murakami's A Wild Sheep Chase and I loved it. I love, love, loved it. I feel like this is a thing I should like. I think the fact that you feel like you should like it and you didn't is half of why you are extra annoyed by right. it. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that's why I want to say that, right? I'm, I'm aware of that. But this movie to me just felt pretty shallow. I mean, we're going to talk later. We have a bunch of non-nominees that we also watched about another little character drama. It's about three lonely characters. It's about loneliness and connection. Yeah. yeah, I thought about that and a lot I'm, while I was watching. I it. really liked it. So we're going to reveal what that is and talk about it as well. So like, this isn't a case where at the core, the subject matter just isn't for me. And I also want to say that because I've definitely seen as I was reading reviews online, people being like, 
well, you just didn't get it because you're probably a stupid person who likes movies where things blow up. And it's like, yeah, I do like movies where things blow up, but I like other stuff too, you know? I like quiet <laughs> movies where things don't blow up yeah, too. Yeah, I like them both. I thought there were a lot of missed opportunities. I think there are choices made in this movie that just aren't very thoughtful in how they're spun out. So like she's decided to set this movie in Japan, right? And loneliness is an endemic part of Japanese society. And I don't think this movie takes any advantage of that. It doesn't take this opportunity to draw like cross-cultural comparisons and have the place make the themes more resonant. To me, right, and this is going to get into the comedy of it, the Japanese are like just in the background. They're there for punchlines. I don't know what the movie wants me to feel when she goes to an arcade and she's just looking around. That's not even that weird. <laughs> like, it feels like a lot of the comedy in this movie is built around like, aren't Japanese people weird? And it's like, I don't know. I don't agree with it. I also thought this movie was really unnecessarily mean to the Anna Ferris character, which we can also. Yeah, I want to talk into. about the Anna Ferris character. I had a lot of thoughts about that. I And I guess to go back a step, I agree with you. There's definitely, they're drawing a lot of comedy from the like, isn't it funny that Japanese people are different than American people? I don't know that I thought that way, particularly about the arcade. I feel like there are a lot of moments where she's just going around and being like, oh, isn't this interesting more than isn't this like so Yeah, I think bizarre. there's both a comedy element and just a looking element. But I, yeah. I think the looking element also is not really in service of anything. Well, the problem is you're right. She's not using the loneliness of Japanese culture to mirror the theme of the loneliness of these characters. She's just using the fact that they're in a very different culture to be the like, they're strangers in a strange land. Yeah. They're out of place and don't fit in and that's adding to their loneliness. And so she's missing this layer that she could be using. But anyway, on to Anna Faris. <laughs> yes. Giovanni Ribisi plays Scarlett Johansson's husband, who's the mm -hmm. photographer. He had worked with Anna Faris's character before on some photo shoot. Yeah, she's an actress. Yeah, they run into her in Tokyo and she's like, oh my God, like, it's you. I remember you from our photo shoot. We should hang out, that kind of thing. And she's the most vapid stereotype of an American actress that she could possibly be. And so she's there so that Scarlett Johansson can be in conversation with her and be left feeling like this woman is ridiculous and I don't understand why my husband wants to interact with her or whatever. Mm -hmm. But really what it was doing for me, like just the existence of Anna Faris' character gave Scarlett Johansson's character such strong, she's not like other girls <laughs> vibes. Yes. And that annoyed the shit out of me. <laughs> like, I mean, the, Anna Faris is very friendly. Like she seems very yes. nice. And so yes. it's like you're just being mean to this person who's just because like, she's dumb is yeah. the implication because Scarlett Johansson's character is very well educated right. and makes jokes at the expense of Anna Faris, who is like she's staying at the hotel under a fake name because she's very famous. And then it turns out that the fake name she's using was actually a man in history. And so the implication is she doesn't even know who this person is that yeah. she's staying under the name of. And then Giovanni Ribisi is there to be like to Scarlett Johansson, basically, you're such a snob. <laughs> like, right. not everyone is this. Yeah, I know you went to Yale. And you know, you're very smart, but don't be a dick. But I feel like I'm sort of on his side in that moment. And I don't think you're supposed to be I think you're supposed no. to be feeling like Scarlett Johansson's character. But I just I wish that because Anna Faris is really the main other woman in the movie. I was going to say there are not that many women, but really there are not that many characters. Yes. There are like five characters in this movie. And so, so it just feels like a bummer to me that the only other woman you're left with is this, <laughs> like mm -hmm. this sad stereotype of a woman that's only there so that you can be like, but Scarlett Johansson's not like that. What's the implication? Like, 
lots of people are not like that in all kinds of ways. And lots of people are like that. And that's not necessarily a problem. Right. She seems very friendly. She seems <laughs> She's really not the, nice. She's not harming yeah. anyone. Exactly. Like if she was a dick, that would be one thing. Yeah. But that's not a part of her character at all. She's just not that well educated and kind of bubbly. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. I guess I should say before we get too much further, I am not as annoyed by this movie as you. There are lots of things that I do like about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, half of it might just be that I love Bill Murray. All right. That's fair. But I'll say like that that's doing a lot of the work of this movie for me. And also, I mean, Japan just photographs beautifully. It does look nice. It's a, it's a gorgeous looking movie, <laughs> which deserves to be said. But get to your final sticking point before we get to anything else. So I think the Anna Ferris component is wrapped up with The other sort of major problem I had with this movie, which is the characterization of Scarlett Johansson's character, Charlotte, I found Mm -hmm. it to be quite incoherent. So I couldn't find anything anyone else talking about this, but I think there's a continuity error with her character where she just graduated from Yale, she says. And I tried to find something online where they said what her age was. And Mm -hmm. it's really difficult to find anything because really what comes up is the fact that Scarlett Johansson was 17 when they shot this film. And like, side note, I'm not really comfortable with the fact that this movie starts out with a 17 year old's butt through sheer panties. Like, I don't I don't really love that. (laughs) I did not know that she was 17 when they shot this film. I don't love that if I'm being honest. But there's an article in like Focus Features, which produced this movie, right, that says she's 22. But in another portion of this film, she says that they've been married for two years. Yeah. And that she moved out to L.A. when they got married. So I was assuming all the way through that she graduated from grad school. Yeah, but I don't think that's the case. So I think there's like, yeah, there's a continuity error. But then also, if we don't think about the fact that they moved out to L.A. together, she's a person who got married while she was an undergrad at Yale at, at the age of 20. That's very unusual. That is incredibly unusual. Yeah she's a kind of a strange character like you want to dig into this detail why would someone do that what was happening in her life that caused her to get married to this guy and also what Mm -hmm. was the state of the relationship at the time I think this is very much one of these films where you see a marriage and you're like but I don't understand why they were ever in love how was he different in the past from how he is now that got them to this place and maybe you know it's besides the point but I struggled with that I also to the, the point of her being not like other girls I felt that the detail of her going to Yale and getting a philosophy degree was really just a choice that was just like, see, she's smart. But it's sort of like the Japan thing. I'm like, well, this should spin out in a more interesting way. Like, I don't understand how you spend four years studying philosophy at Yale and you have nothing to bring to bear on the ennui you're experiencing from that at all. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) Right. She's listening to some kind of like pablum self-help tape yeah which does not feel like it fits in with her i'm a philosophy major right and i'm supposed to think anna ferris is vapid was she not paying attention in class at all how did she graduate (laughs) and then later in the film right she tells bill murray that she thought about oh you know i wanted to be a writer but i'm no good at writing and i wanted to do photography and i'm like then why did you major in philosophy yale has an english program you could have done the creative writing track what are you doing So like all these details of her character to me felt very sort of sloppy and like they didn't come together. I I kind of couldn't make heads or tails of her as a person. And I again, I think there is a legitimate continuity error in the timeline of her life in this movie. Confusing as well. And I think it would be such an easy thing to fix. My immediate thought was don't make her have a philosophy degree. 
have her go to Yale and have majored in something really practical to get a job, like something soulless that then she could feel yeah. listless about. That's just a quick fix to be like, yeah, I get why she would major in that and then not want to pursue it and, and feel like she didn't know what she wanted to do with her life. But philosophy is such an introspective discipline for her to not even be quoting anyone at any point for this this incredibly smart character who knows about literature to not have anything to bring to bear on something that is very much the focus of philosophy, the meaning yeah. of existence. Right. I was like, I can't handle this. It was driving <laughs> me crazy. And then I was also just irritated by them in certain places as terrible American tourists, like when they go into that hospital and they're laughing and then he leaves the wheelchair for someone to put back. And it's like, don't do that. These people are at work. Also, you're in a hospital. People are sick. Don't be running yeah. into people with the wheelchair. That's a small thing that also just irritated me. But I think, yeah, the combination of this being a subject matter that I usually do resonate with and just what to me is not taking advantage of the details that are put into the script in any sort of real way. It just, I don't know, it felt pretty shallow to me. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I mean, I, how do I feel about this movie? I guess I just, I agree with you that it's shallow, but I sort of have always just been able to sit with it in a place where it doesn't really move me a lot, but also I think it's like fine. <laughs> like it doesn't offend me though you're I have no quibbles with any of your problems with it I sort of am just like yeah Bill Murray's charming and they've made some sort of connection that's working for them or whatever yeah. <laughs> it's not really doing a ton for me but it's just a pretty movie to look at and is fairly disposable is how I feel mm. about it but yeah I mean it just sort of is I don't feel strongly about it anyway okay. other than the fact that I I'm always pleased to see Bill Murray. <laughs> well, I don't know. That's lost in translation. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Master and Commander. Okay. This one I'm actually excited to talk about because even though I said it probably shouldn't have won Best Picture, I quite enjoyed it. <laughs> Excellent. Let's say what it's I about. I would love to say what it's about. So this is a story about a... British naval captain in 1805 during the Napoleonic Wars, leading a ship around South America, basically, in pursuit of a more advanced French ship. And so it's sort of them having various naval skirmishes with this ship, and mm -hmm. then it gets away and they chase it, and then they fight again and that sort of thing. All the while, and this is what I really loved about it, it is a story about a sea captain who is trying to take his doctor boyfriend on vacation to the Galapagos and, and getting interrupted over and over by various <laughs> naval business. Yeah. So Russell Crowe is the captain. Paul Bettany plays the doctor on the ship, who is a very accomplished doctor and surgeon. And the two of them have been friends for a long time. And so he is also the captain's main confidant and sort of the only person who will speak his real mind to him. Mm -hmm. So anytime the captain is making decisions that he's not sure about because in the over the course of the movie he gets sort of single-mindedly focused on taking down this French ship even though he hasn't really been ordered to do that and the ship is much more dangerous than their own ship the odds of them being able to defeat it are fairly slim yeah and so often the doctor is having to be like I don't want to question your captaining abilities but also why are we doing this the men are getting <laughs> restless yeah it's gorgeously shot. The ship is super real. The battles yeah. are awesome. It's really impressive. Awesome. Like, 
you know, the compositing they did to make it seem like it's at sea. Well, some of it is shot at sea. And then a lot of it is shot in the super giant tank where they shot Titanic. Right. They had like a full size replica of the ship. And it's really impressive. It looks incredible. It looks so good. The battles feel super real. I really loved the guys on the ship. The vibe of it was Mm -hmm. super warm to me compared to a lot of things about sailors because there are all of these kids on board, which I think is a true thing. Yeah, that was the thing that I thought was the most interesting. I feel like I've never seen a movie about being on sea or the Navy where there are kids on board. But as I was watching, I was like, it makes a lot of sense because how else would you learn how to captain a ship? Where do the future captains come from? It's so difficult that you have to start from childhood. So I was I was fascinated by the kids on board component. And I also really love the relationship between Russell Crowe and the kids. He in particular is very warm and sort of paternal with all the kids, but they all are. The presence of the kids made all of the people on board feel more like a family than you're used to. I feel like when you're watching old Navy things, everyone is always an asshole and a cutthroat. And like, that's how they ended up on the ship because there's nothing else they could do. But there are these kids and everybody sort of feels like they need to take care of the kids and they're all friendly with each other and they sing songs and they tell jokes and like it just sort of felt more welcoming than I'm used to stories about this sort of environment feeling yes so I loved the battles I loved the people and I loved the relationship between Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany which was delightful I will say I watched a a insider YouTube video where a guy from the U.S. Naval War College who's Mm -hmm. expertise is in 19th century ship battles, was reviewing a variety of movies. And he did give this movie a 10 out of 10 for accuracy. And I was like, pretty good, guys. It feels that way. So the various Galapagos Island moments of it are, at one point, they're getting near to Galapagos Islands. Paul Bettany is a naturalist, so he's very excited to go there and see all of these animals that only live on the Galapagos. And so the captain has promised they're going to go to the Galapagos, but right when they're about to go, of course, this French ship shows up again, and so they need to go off and fight the French ship. And and Paul Bettany storms into Russell Crowe's office. He's like, you promised. Yeah, well, in his naturalist outfit. And he walks in, and I was ready for him to be like, do you see what I'm wearing? <laughs> like, I am ready to go onto the islands. You promised we would go and we're not. And so he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, we'll go next time. And so then later on in the movie, Paul Bettany gets injured because some idiot is just firing a gun on the deck of the ship. And so Paul Bettany gets shot in the stomach and... All of a sudden, even though the French ship is within range, Russell Crowe reevaluates all of his priorities and decides that because he has been told it would be easier to do the surgery to remove the bullet on land, looks like we're going to the Galapagos Islands. <laughs> and so he pulls over and they land at the Galapagos Islands and they do the surgery there. Paul Bettany does his own surgery on himself, which is gnarly. Like, <laughs> gnarly. He's there recovering and Paul Bettany's like, I guess we'll be going then. And he's like, no, we're just going to hang out here while you recover. So he gets to hang out and look for his flightless cormorants. But then, of course, he sees the friendship again and off they go. And he has to leave behind all of his specimens, which is super sad. But then finally, at the end, well, kind of, they're going to go back (laughs) to the Galapagos Islands. But then, of course, they do have to chase after the ship again. But you get the sense that they'll go back to the Galapagos Islands after that. Yeah. Eventually, they're going to go on this vacation that he's been promising Paul Bettany forever but it's just a fascinating dynamic i think overall i found this movie to be more interesting than engaging which was the the sort of 
no for me or yes for me wherever we're at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was intended to be a series, so the the film does sort of end on a cliffhanger. It's based on a book series. Yes, but it wasn't financially successful enough for them to make any additional ones. And the yeah. only sort of thought I had was, so, uh, you know, we mentioned there's kids on the boat, and there's one kid in particular who's sort of the clear front runner for captain. He gets told he's in charge of the ship when they go to board the French vessel, and also he's... He does a great job. He does. He shoots a guy in the face. It's pretty he does. He, he leads a boarding party yeah. onto the other ship. It's but great. he's also very interested in Paul Bettany's naturalist work. He's like their son. He's like the best yeah, of he's, both worlds. He's what would be their son if they had a son because he has all of their great qualities. Right. And I thought if this movie was just going to be fully self-contained, it would have also been interesting to have it be from his point of view because he also has relationships with the other kids on the ship and one of his friends dies. And I don't know if that resonated quite as much as if we were like in his perspective, but as it is, I think it's pretty good. And I told you, I was telling some of my other friends that we were doing this movie. And my one friend, very excitedly, was like, is that the lesser of two weevils movie? And I yeah, was like, there's yes. a part in it where they're at dinner and they're just hanging out and, and telling jokes. And the captain <laughs> points out on a plate a couple of weevils. And he asked the doctor to if he had to choose between the weevils, which one would he pick? And the doctor picks one of them. And, and then he makes fun of him and says that he should have picked the lesser of two weevils. <laughs> and everyone laughs. And everyone laughs and laughs, except Paul Bettany, who's like, God, that's dumb. <laughs> so yeah, I liked it. I had a great time. I mean, I'll spoil the rest of our conversation, but I think this is the movie of the five that I enjoyed the most. Okay. I guess if I were independent of all context... And I had to pick one of these five. This is the one I would pick. But I do, I acknowledge that even though I'm not a huge Lord of the Rings fan, everyone else in the world is. So uh, <laughs> I get what was happening with that one. And I, yeah. I'm willing to concede its victory. Well, we'll talk about it when we get there. But before we get there, we have to talk about Mystic River. If we have to. We do. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about Mystic River. Okay, so Mystic River, as we said, is about these three childhood friends who drift apart. But before that happens, when they are kids, they are playing a uh, street ball. And they see a patch of wet cement and they all decide to cover their names into the wet cement. And as they're doing it, what appears to be a police officer comes up and he's like, hey, kids, you can't mess with city property. And then the police officer gets one of them to get into the car with him because he lives like a couple blocks away and he says he's going to take the kid home. But uh, turns out he's not a police officer. He and the guy in the car with him are pedophiles. And they kidnap this boy and lock him up somewhere for four days and presumably molest him. And he is able to escape. That's what we see of the portion of the film where they're boys. After that, they drift apart. We cut to when they are adults in middle age. Uh, Sean Penn plays Jimmy, who had gone to prison for a couple years and now runs a convenience store in the neighborhood. Kevin Bacon plays... Another one of the Sean? kids. Sean? I, I, was just, I was just about to say, I did not write down any okay. of the names. So Kevin Bacon plays Sean? Yeah, Kevin Bacon plays Sean. Okay, who has become a cop. And Tim Robbins plays Dave, the kid who was molested, who is just married and a dad, like presumably mm -hmm. has a job. I don't know that we know what it is. Yep. Sean Penn's daughter, played by a young Emmy Rossum. Very young Emmy Rossum, doesn't come home after going out one night. And it turns out, unfortunately, she has been murdered. And of course, Kevin Bacon is the detective on the case. Yeah, he's assigned to solve the murder. But meanwhile, Sean Penn is using his underworld connections to try to solve it. First, the same night that this happened, Tim Robbins comes home at 3 a.m. covered in blood. 
and he tells his wife, Marsha K. Harden, that he had been mugged and he had beaten up the mugger and he worried he'd kill the guy. Basically, what ends up happening is... Kevin Bacon isn't like, finding the killer fast enough for Sean Penn. Marsha Gay Harden <laughs> is becoming increasingly concerned that her husband killed the daughter. Well, I, I guess it deserves to be said that Dave did see Emmy Rossum. The oh, night. yes. They were in the bar together the night before. She tells Sean Penn that she thinks that might have happened. Sean Penn, with a couple of his hoods, ends up killing Dave. Kevin Bacon determines that the real killer was the brother of Emmy Rossum's fiance, and it was a complete accident. They were playing with a gun in the street and they shot her. Kind of, yeah. The initial shooting was an accident and then they chased her and killed her so she wouldn't tell what had happened. And Kevin Bacon tells Sean Penn that they caught the guys, but it's too late. Sean Penn has killed Tim Robbins. And I guess Mm -hmm. Kevin Bacon's like, well, I'll catch you later about this crime. I know you did it, but I'll catch you later. And then we can talk about the very end of the movie with Laura Linney. I found that to be... Uh, real twist out of left field, but we can get into that's like the basic overview. Yeah, that's of it. The those film. are the main plot points. <laughs> okay, where to begin with Mystic River? This is a Clint Eastwood directed film. I guess I should say of every Clint Eastwood directed movie I've ever seen, I don't think I've enjoyed any of them. <laughs> so I don't know what that says about me or Clint Eastwood, but I just find him to be so heavy-handed as a director. There's no subtlety to anything that he does. And it starts so early in this movie, right before Emmy Rossum's character disappears. She's saying goodbye to her dad. And of course, they're having this scene that is because you're only going to get one scene with them together. So you need to be really attached to her and understand why Jimmy is going to go so crazy when she dies. So she's hugging and kissing him. And they're so close. They're the closest father and daughter that's ever been. And then when she goes to leave, she, she turns around for one last look at her dad and they share this lingering eye contact and it's like, she's just going to a bar. They're going to see each other tomorrow. <laughs> well, it is revealed that she was planning on running away. She's eloping with her boyfriend yeah. to Las Vegas, which to me undercut the entire nature of the relationship. If she's running away, that says something about her relationship with her father, right? Yeah. That I don't think this movie follows up on, but continue. Obviously, you're not you don't know that in the moment. But what you do know is that he's trying to get you to connect to this girl. because yeah. Clearly, something's going to fucking happen to her since he's being so unsubtle about her leaving. <laughs> and you're just like, OK, OK, I get it. Something's going to happen to Emmy Rossum. And then, of course, it does. Then, I, I mean, Sean Penn's doing the most. Over yeah. The course what did of the you film. think of his performance? Because he won the best acting award this year he sure did i mean he really was doing stuff the whole way through i mean i'm not like in love with the performance it was loud it was was big it was big yeah i i really didn't care for it and it is not hard for a movie to make me cry particularly around like grief about family members dying like that yeah that is that's not a huge bar to clear for me for a movie And I Mm -hmm. could not connect to his performance at all. It was so performative in places. And then in other places, it was like non-existent that it was part of his character to me. I don't don't know. There's something about the way he played it where I was just like, I feel like it's not that hard. (laughs) And you don't have to be trying so hard. Yeah. I mean, he's trying so hard that that it doesn't doesn't feel real. Is Is that that my daughter in there? Is that my daughter in there? I, I kept thinking about that scene like, what if it wasn't his daughter? That would be very embarrassing. That's true. What if Kevin Bacon came out and was like, no, it's someone else's daughter. And he was just like, oh, <laughs> oh, oh sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 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 okay. 
Let me know if you do find my daughter so that I can do this again. <laughs> yeah. I also thought that scene was pretty strange and not to be an incredibly callous person, but they find Emmy Rossum's body and the cop walks out and he's like, I've never seen anything like that before. And then you see her and she's fully clothed and just kind of bruised. Yeah. And you're like, is it's this just your like first a day? dead girl. And you're like, yeah, I mean, it sucks, but it's not like we've yeah. all seen something worse than this before if we've watched any amount of Law and Order. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a very small nitpick, but I thought it was so strange. Yeah, it was weird. Maybe it's his first day. I will say someone who was not doing the most and who I did love was Kevin Bacon. Yeah, Kevin Bacon's good in this. But, He's super uh, solid. What's up with his wife? Okay, here's what I will say. I did not understand a single thing that any of the three wives did in this movie. Uh, so let's run through the wives because we basically just gave the guys storylines. Kevin Bacon's wife is, is unrelated to the story. Something has happened where the two of them split, but because his wife sort of just ran off one day with their child that he has not met. She must have been pregnant when yeah. she left. And even though she's been gone for what seems like quite a while, he has not moved on. His his partner, who is Lawrence Fishburne, is encouraging him to, like, go get with some other ladies because people are hitting on him because, you know, he's Kevin Bacon. Sure. And he's like, no, I'm still married. And the, what's tying him to his wife is that every once in a while, she calls him and just says nothing. And they just sit on the phone with each other and he's and like... And he's like, Nora or whatever her name Nora, is. Nora, what are you doing? Hello. Hello. Why are you calling what's happening what is our daughter's name or whatever you know like and she just sits there and says nothing for reasons unexplained to us and then for some reason even though they don't interact other than these phone calls over the course of the film something changes on her end and then by the end of the movie she does talk to him and tells him what their daughter's name is and decides she's gonna come back and you're like why Clearly, there hasn't been any change in their relationship because <laughs> they haven't even communicated. But I guess she got enough time away and now everything's fine again because she does come back by the end. It's very bizarre to call someone and not say anything repeatedly. It's it's bizarre. For what seems like years? Yeah, at least months. <laughs> like long enough for a child to be born. I don't know. It's incredibly bizarre. Didn't understand that at all. And then you have, let's go to Dave's wife. Yeah, Marsha Gay Harden. Who I normally like Marsha Gay Harden. All of these actresses are fine actresses. But Marsha Gay Harden's character, I find inexplicable because she's so immediately suspicious of her husband for reasons that I don't really understand. And I get that the timing is suspicious, and I understand why detectives would be sure. suspicious of him. But she's his wife, who should know him very well, and presumably like him, kind of, <laughs> and like have some sort of faith in him as a human person. Mm -hmm. And instead, as soon as she finds out that Emmy Rossum is missing, is suspicious that he's the one who did it. And I just, I don't really understand why, other than the timing. But sure, there can be suspicious timing. Yeah. <laughs> why Why does she think her husband would murder their friend's daughter? I mean, that's a big leap. I don't know. So you're left being like, has he done something suspicious in the past that would lead her to believe this? And and I also feel like everyone in the movie is suspicious of him because he was molested as a child. Lawrence Fishburne is like, he fits the profile. He was molested as a child. And you're like, does everyone who's molested as a child become a murderer? I think not. <laughs> Where is this coming from? No, I I mean, I thought the, the whole molestation, to me, it was just distasteful how it was used in the movie in like yeah. a... a a very serious way and their characterization of Dave as a result of it was was very strange. Yeah, I did not like it. But yeah, her being so suspicious of him to go so far as to tell the dad of the girl that she thought he did it. 
with no evidence that he did it. It was like, damn, Marsha Gay Harden, that fucking sucks. Yeah, at least tell the <laughs> cops, not Jimmy. Yeah, maybe tell the cops instead of a guy who is likely to murder him extrajudiciously. So that's her. That's okay. Marsha Gay Harden. Let's talk about the left turn this movie takes at yeah. the end with Laura Linney. It really does. I mean, I guess we should talk a little bit about Jimmy's criminal past because we haven't talked about that. Right. So he now is a guy who owns a convenience store and seems on the right side of the law. We learned that he was in jail 17 years ago or something Mm -hmm. when his daughter was still really young. And then his first wife, who's the mother of Emmy Rossum, died. And he was left to raise this small child on his own when he got out of prison. It turns out that he ended up taking the rap for some people who were also responsible and didn't get in any trouble. And it comes out by the end that the guy who fingered him, he murdered when he got out of prison. Yeah. And the and the police seem like kind of aware of it, but haven't really bothered to do anything about it. Right. <laughs> and so he is sort of recapturing his roots when he ends up murdering Dave. So Sean Penn has remarried Laura Linney and they have two daughters. And to me throughout the movie... It seems like he is preoccupied with his first daughter and his first wife in a way. Which is, I mean, clearly Laura Linney thinks that too. Yeah. Because the events of the day when Emmy Rossum goes yeah. missing, there's some church event for the, the younger daughter mm-hmm. that is not Emmy Rossum. And Laura Linney has to be like, you make sure you show up at that fucking church because remember that you have other daughters. Right. <laughs> and so clearly there's this thing where like he's very, very close to Emmy Rossum. And he's never stopped grieving his first wife whose right. death he missed because he was in prison so you when she died. So think there's like a little bit of resentment on Laura Linney's part. Right. Towards the older daughter. And like Laura Linney's barely a character in the yeah. movie up to the end where Sean Penn reveals to her that he killed Dave. Yep. And Laura Linney is like... She's psyched about she's it. She's like, you you did that to protect your daughters. And it, it shows your daughter and shows your other daughters that you would protect them too, that their daddy would do anything for them because their daddy is a king and you're going to run this town. And you're like, where it's did this so come fucking weird. from? I don't know. But also, has she decided that he should now go back into crime? Does she want him to be some sort of criminal kingpin? Because that's not who she married. Why is she so happy about that? And he's going to rule this town? Like, what are you talking about? Where is the hell is any of this coming from? It was so out of left field. Who is this person? And why is she not care at all about her cousin, Marsha Gay Harden, whose husband just got murdered? And then at the very end of the movie, they're all at a parade together. And they're both looking at Marsha Gay Harden like, you're the villain. You did this. You're you're on trial. she says, Laura Linney says to him in that moment, what kind of woman says that about their husband? Because she knows that Marsha Gay Harden said that she was worried that he was the murderer. And even though I kind of was thinking that. Yeah, but you don't (laughs) think it's okay that Sean Penn killed Dave. No, I don't think it's okay that Sean Penn killed Dave. You don't think he's a king. And I don't think he's a king. And I don't understand her being so like, fuck you, Marsha Gay Harden. Who cares if your husband is now dead? Because my husband murdered him. It was so weird. It It comes out of completely nowhere because there's absolutely no characterization of her to that point that would lead you to believe that she is in favor of him becoming a murderer slash head of some sort of criminal organization. It comes out of nowhere. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. It's so bizarre. And I think it sort of gets a, a overarching issue that I have with this movie, which is what's the point of it? Is that the point of the movie? There's That's another part get. when Kevin Bacon and Sean Penn are together after he's murdered Dave, where they're like, I forget who says this to who, but they say, I feel like we all got in that car, that we're all 11-year-old boys in a cellar wondering what our life would have been like if we'd escaped. And I'm like, that's what this movie is about? They keep implying that Dave being kidnapped really set them all down these paths in their lives. But I don't understand how. 
No. Why did Dave being kidnapped cause Sean Penn to be a criminal and Kevin Bacon to be a cop? I don't understand how it affected their lives. I care about how it affected Dave's life, and this movie doesn't seem to care about how it affected Dave's life at all. No. I couldn't make heads or tails about what the movie was about. Nope. No idea. And at that final scene when they're all at this parade and looking at each other across the street, Kevin Bacon and Sean Penn make eye contact with each other, and Kevin Bacon does this I'm gonna get you gesture. Mm-hmm. Because he knows that he murdered Dave. And you're sort of like, okay, but then like, what are we waiting for? Yeah. (laughs) Like, why have you not gotten him yet when you know exactly what happened? I don't. It it was so strange to me. Yeah. Yeah. And the movie implies that Sean Penn is some kind of criminal mastermind. And I'm like, is he? Because they just murdered a guy out back from a restaurant. It seems like they could find that body. I don't know. I don't. I mean, the implication is he threw him into the mystic. Right. Right. And which is what he did with the body of the guy that he murdered 15 years but ago. But they can search rivers for bodies. Yeah, you'd think. Especially when the day after he murders him, Kevin Bacon knows exactly what happened. <laughs> you'd think they would then immediately be looking. It's not like a body from 15 years ago. No. I don't know, man. I didn't get it. No. I I also, yeah, the characters, I was just like, what, what's going on with anyone? And also... I I just I couldn't connect the opening, which is so horrible. Like, it's such an insane thing to happen in someone's life. Yeah. And that it just it feels quite disconnected from anything else. It is, because if the movie is about the repercussions of that, I don't understand how any of it relates. Yeah. You want to talk about Seabiscuit? Sure. Seabiscuit is a movie about kind of three characters. So you have Jeff Bridges, who is an industrialist. He invents a faster car and in what I thought ended up being sort of a subversion of my expectations. He has a young son who he teaches how to drive his car. And when he's away, his son drives the car and kills himself. So I was like, oh, this is like a kid dying in a horse accident. But it's a car in this horse movie. Exactly like a kid dying in the horse accident, as we were just talking about having happened in a bunch of movies, because Jeff Bridges specifically treats his cars like horses. He has stabled all of his cars in the stable where the horses would go. (laughs) And then the kid, unsupervised, drives the car exactly like all the kids riding the horses by themselves and then dies in the car accident it was exactly the same yeah it was i was like this is weird okay so that's one of the characters and then you have toby mcguire who grows up in this loving family but then the depression hits and they lose everything but he has a real gift at riding horses and so he is essentially left to live with a guy where he can ride horses and make money while his family goes off and is not with him anymore And he has kind of a tough life growing up. He's scrabbling to make a living. He does boxing matches on the side for more cash. And then the last character we have is Chris Cooper, who's sort of like a horse whisperer. He's a trainer who knows a lot about racing. So all these characters come together. They get this horse, Seabiscuit, who's undersized for a racehorse. But he's been mistreated and he's a little difficult. And through all three of their loving care, he starts to become a champion. And so he's winning races, but they're in California, so not where the heart of horse racing is, which is on the East Coast and, you know, like in Kentucky and Baltimore. And so they want Seabiscuit to be able to race against the top champs so they can prove themselves. Well, because there's a there's a triple crown winner at yes. the time. So there's an incredibly 
is it War Admiral? Yes, I think that's true. I did not write it down, but that sounds correct. Yeah, so they get the owners of War Admiral to agree to a race, an exhibition for just the two of them. And right when this is about to happen, Toby Maguire's character agrees to do a favor for the guy that had taken him in when he was a kid. And he gets thrown from the horse because of some engine backfire or something. He totally fucks up his leg and he's not going to be able to race Seabiscuit. And so they're like, we're going to call off the race. And he's like, no, you can't fall, call off the race. So he tells them to bring in his friend, who's this very successful jockey. And then the jockey friend rides Seabiscuit. Seabiscuit wins. Yay! And it's a big deal. And then that jockey friend is continuing to ride Seabiscuit, but Seabiscuit gets injured. Seabiscuit injures his leg. Yeah. And then Seabiscuit and Red, who's the jockey, have matching casts on their same legs. <laughs> and they and, rehabilitate together. And neither of them is supposed to ever be able to race again. And then, of course, it turns out they can race again and Seabiscuit's getting ready and they're going to introduce Seabiscuit back to the racing. And Red's like, I want to be the one to race on Seabiscuit. And they're like, you can't be the one to race on Seabiscuit because if any small bump happens, you could reshatter your leg and never walk again. And he's like, I was never supposed to walk again in the first place. And then the two of them race together and it's like magical and wonderful. And it's like the cheesiest, most Disney movie of all Disney movies. And at the very end, Red, the jockey says, a lot of people thought we took this broken down horse and fixed him. But really, he, he fixed, fixed us. us. And in a little bit, we fixed each other. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I got it. <laughs> you didn't have to say it. <laughs> Oh, what a movie. Yeah, so this movie is, it's fine. It's, I mean, it's not memorable. It's cute. It's exactly what it professes to be. It's a movie about an underdog racehorse. Yeah. And his underdog jockey. And then they win. And it's exactly what you expect to get. I mean, it's too long. It yes. should not be two hours and 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. It should be closer to an hour 45. Yeah. <laughs> Disney family movie length. There's so much at the beginning that they do not need because they yeah. give you all of this backstory for all of them before any of them meet each other. And you're just like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, get to the race. Yeah, especially the the stuff. Like, there's a weird little scene where Jeff Bridges is in New York and someone's like, what we really need is better spindles. And I'm like, why is this scene even in this movie? Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> there's also this stylistic choice where they cut to still images from the Depression and there's a voiceover that's like, on that day, everyone yeah. lost the money and it's just still photos. And you're like, this is a movie. Yeah, guys. I don't need this much introduction of what the Great Depression is. I get it. We all know what the Great Depression is. It was just a lot. Just get to the part where all the underdogs meet each other and find their perfect pairing and do their racing. I mean, it was not great art. It was a, exactly what you'd expect from a pleasant everything's happy in the end movie so if you're looking for a happy horse movie sea biscuits your thing if you're looking for a best picture i don't think it is no okay that's sea biscuit so that means we should talk about the victor the lord of the ring return of the king Okay, so obviously this is the third movie in the series. The sort of overarching plot is there's this ring of power from this great evil Sauron that they need to destroy because if Sauron is able to get possession of the ring again, darkness will overtake the land. 
And so the third movie comes in where our two main characters who are trying to destroy the ring, Frodo and Sam, they have to do the final portion of their journey to get to the volcano, the only place it can be destroyed. A bunch of other characters are trying to rally the remaining kingdoms to engage in a fight with Sauron's forces. And so, I mean, that kind of plays out. I don't know how beat for beat we want to get into the details of the plot. But, you know, long story short, Frodo and Sam, they're able to destroy the ring despite the attempts of Gollum to stop them, who is also very possessed with a desire for the ring. And the men are able to hold off and distract the forces of Mordor to allow Frodo and Sam to do it. So that's the broad strokes of the plot. I feel like most people have seen this movie. Yeah, I was going to say, if people have seen any of the movies from this year, I feel like they've probably seen that one. Yeah, I know you don't particularly love Lord of the Rings. I'm a a Mm -hmm. big fan of these films. So Mm -hmm. I guess I'll start with a question of, do you think there is some way the story could have been told that you would have liked it substantially better? Or is this a case where like the material just really isn't? to your taste. I guess I'll say generally, I think the material of Lord of the Rings as a whole is not really to my taste. I'm generally not a high fantasy lover. I'd say there are things I think they could have done to help me to enjoy Return of the King more than I did because it's so goddamn long. (laughs) It's just, it's three hours and 20 minutes. There are things where I'm like, does this really need to be happening? Hmm. You've heard me talk many times before about how I feel like there are just too many endings. I don't need all of them. But yeah, I mean, I don't think it's poorly made. It's obviously quite a spectacle of film. Again, I find Peter Jackson to be like not that subtle of a director. He's not particularly to my taste. But I don't think that I have a lot of quibbles with the quality of Mm. the film. It's just not really a story for me. I mean, obviously, that is very fair. (laughs) I think what I was going back to, knowing that about you, is, so uh, like I said, I'm a big fan. I was thinking, too, about, you know, one thing that we can't get at with this podcast is being in the moment of the cinematic experience of any film coming out. And I know that a lot of my affection for these films is deeply tied to that emotional experience of waiting every year for the next one to come out. And it's Christmas and you get to see it at the midnight movie and everyone's excited and you're like, oh, how are they going to do this? But yeah, so I read all the books before the first one came out and we were pretty young when they came out. I think the first one we were like 11 or 12. I feel like it was like middle school. Right. I just, I don't think that, again, if you like this material, like anyone could have done a much better job of adapting it to the screen. It's such a long and complex story. There's so many characters. You're juggling a, a bunch of different plots. And I think it's just, it's really, really well done how they adapted it. I think it's very smart. And I can't remember if this was true in the book but I think one of the ways they juggle all these characters is they sort of pair them off into couples right so Mm -hmm. you don't have to worry that everyone has a relationship with Pippin and feels deeply about Pippin it's Pippin and Mary it's Frodo and Sam it's Legolas and Gimli it's Aragorn and Gandalf they're all in their sort of separate stories and so then you can latch on to like well Mary cares about Pippin and so I'm caring about this relationship and Legolas cares about Gimli you know etc so I thought that was a very smart approach they took to trying to manage all of these different characters there's just there's lines I love from this movie I love it when Sam says don't go where I can't follow when Frodo is telling him to leave I love it when he says I can't carry it for you but I can carry you that's always so good (laughs) I love at the end when Legolas and Gimli are together and Gimli says to Legolas, I never thought I'd die fighting side by side with an elf. And Legolas says, with a friend. friend." And he's like, hi, I could do that. I'm like, oh. So, yeah, I mean, the movie does work for me on like a plot and a character level in addition to the technical level. So 
I'm fully immersed and, and fully on board. And I think it is just an accomplishment. If ever we are to give an award for filmmaking being an accomplishment, this feels to me the time to do yeah. it. Well, I mean, that's why I have told you that I'm not mad. Yeah. But do you want to talk about all of the endings that you don't care for? Yeah. I, well, let me give a couple of things that I do like about it, just so that everyone who loves Lord of the Rings doesn't hate me so much. I like that Sam gets his badass moments in this one. But I like that he gets to be the one that rescues Frodo in this one. So that's nice. And this is the one that has all of the dramatic Merry and Pippin moments. I like Merry and Pippin. I like when they're separated and it's highly dramatic. And then they find each other again. And he's like, you know, are you going to leave me? No, I'm going to take care of you <laughs> i always love denethor running off the cliff on fire that's always super cool the legolas and gimli moments that are in this one are fun because i always like them but i feel like it is lacking in legolas and gimli i would have liked more of them i always feel like these movies need more women but that's just a broad lord of the rings thing i do not like the racist middle eastern caricatures riding the elephants that's fair in this one and that in combination with them talking about like the men of the west is just not it's not great yeah okay the endings let me just speak about the endings because mm-hmm. I wrote down all of the endings. So yeah, what I, I call it the Hobbit's bouncing on the bed ending is <laughs> the first ending. Part of my issue with the endings is I feel like they all move slow as molasses. The first one kind of is in slow-mo, but I feel like all of them are in slow motion. So them bouncing on the bed, I find really cheesy because it's just slow motion bouncing and laughter. Then you have the ending, which is maybe my favorite ending and probably in my mind should have been the ending of okay. the like... Aragorn is crowned and Arwen is back and then they all bow to the hobbits yes. and you're like this is nice no my friends you bow to no one exactly that's lovely but then you also have Frodo narrating his book that he's finishing and they go back to the Shire and then they're like having drinks at the bar this is what I call the you can't go home again ending mm-hmm. Where they're all looking around like, we've all been changed by our experiences, but the Shire remains the same. And then Sam gets the girl. Then we go to the bringing Bilbo to the elf boat ending. They get to the elf boat and then it's goodbye to Bilbo. And then it's goodbye to Gandalf. And then it's like, oh, wait, Frodo's leaving too. Now goodbye to Frodo. And everybody has to give him a hug. And Sam is super sad about it understandably so because why would you not tell poor sam that this was going to happen he's your best friend and then the final ending is sam going home to the shire and being consoled by the presence of his wife and children and this is what i call the life goes on ending so i just feel like it's a lot and i understand in theory if i care deeply about each of these characters (laughs) i would not mind spending more time with all of them and seeing that they each get the ending that they so desire Yes. So what I would cut, I think, is the hobbits bouncing on the bed. I don't need it. I'm happy for them to have some time at the Shire so that you can have the you can't go home again ending because that's fair enough. And that's sort of the whole point of it since Mm -hmm. it's Tolkien writing about his war experiences. The half an hour should be 15 or 20 minutes (laughs) max is what I say. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's, as you're saying, very much a symptom of you're not super engaged in the yes. movie and the characters. And I will say, too, in terms of cultural impact of this film, I know you're a Game of Thrones fan, right? Mm-hmm. Game of Thrones would not exist if these films Definitely. had not it happened. So it did make fantasy a thing that could be prestige. And I think that's, you know, part of the legacy. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. 
So we have a lot of other films still left to discuss. Well, you might have noticed that we were fairly underwhelmed by the official selections this year. So we scoured the world for some other options and came across quite a few that we did like. Yeah, strangely enough, 2003 was a year full of movies that I really like. Just yeah. none of them were nominated. Except for Lord of the Rings. So I guess we already talked about the box office and Lord of the Rings was far and away the winner of the year. We've looked at some best of lists. We looked at AFI lists. There's not really anything from this year that stands out. The various best of the year lists that people made were super varied in Mm -hmm. an interesting way. So I think we're going to cover a little bit of that in our upcoming conversation because we're talking about quite the collection of other films. But there's no standout one thing that everyone is like, how could they have forgotten to nominate such and such? So this is an interesting one to start with. It is a movie that was nominated for four Academy Awards. If you know about Oscars history, you might have at least heard of it. It's a movie that for a lot of years in my life, I'd heard of as being really great and meant to watch, but hadn't gotten around to. So now I finally have, and I'm happy that I did. It's called City of God. It is a foreign language film set in the quote unquote City of God part of Rio de Janeiro. Yeah, it's a favela of Rio. Yeah, basically a slum of Rio where they round up homeless people in Rio de Janeiro and send them out to this place where everybody lives in these tiny little houses that don't have any electricity or water and people are left to sort of fend for themselves out here. I don't know if this is true of Brazil, it might be, but a lot of countries have written into their constitutions a right to housing, which is why these sort of shantytown slums exist in places like South Africa, because it is Mm -hmm. a constitutional right. So that might be the case in Brazil That's certainly possible. Because, yeah, the, the government is facilitating places for these people to live, even though they are with the barest possible minimum amount of services. Yes. It's a fascinating movie. I think it's super stylish and interestingly constructed. It's told in sort of chapters. Mm -hmm. It's it's based on a book that is loosely based on a real story. Right. (laughs) So you're a couple of things removed from it being like a documentary. But it is based on real neighborhood and real people from this neighborhood. Fascinatingly, the cast is almost entirely Mm non-actors. It's people from specifically the City of God neighborhood and then other places like it that they found because there wasn't the talent base that they were hoping to find in terms of Brazilian actors, Right, which I think serves it very nicely. Mm -hmm. I love the cast of this movie. I think there's a lot of interesting naturalism to it and the people all feel convincing. Yeah. I don't know if we said very briefly, it's about the kids who live in the city of God. And it starts off, I think, in the 60s. And so this is when the city of God appears to have just been built. And there's sort of like petty crime throughout it that's just recurring. And you're focusing on a couple of the kids. And basically over the decade or so or decade and a half, one of the young kids gets the idea in his head that he's going to be the drug kingpin of the slums. And you see the slum develop and densify and also him take control of essentially the city by starting to deal cocaine, I think is what comes in. Yeah. And so then he kind of starts running the town, but then uh, a full drug war breaks out. And there's a component of the story where that's happening. But we're more following this kid, Rocket, who's sort of on the outside of all of this. He has ambitions to be a photographer. And so he is sort of experiencing being 
collateral damage in this ongoing drug war and and he's just trying to live his life. And then at the end, it's revealed, of course, that little Zay is the name of the the drug war has been paying off the cops to allow him to be able to deal drugs in the city and they're rotten. But that's sort of like the broad overview of what's happening in the story. I found it to be very, I mean, entertaining is a rough word for it because there's so much bloodshed and death. But there are like lighter moments too. And it was visceral and really well shot. I liked it a lot. Yeah. I mean, this movie is very much the type of movie that I don't enjoy. Like I did see a lot of people say like, despite it, it's entertaining. I can't find material like this entertaining at sort of any level. Yeah. But it's it's very well made. I found the structure to be kind of like Tarantino-esque. I read too well, that it's- particularly a, given the Tarantino movie we're about yeah. to talk about from this year. I I haven't seen Goodfellas, but I read that it, the structure of it is also sort of similar to Goodfellas that, yeah. in a way. So that's, you know, interesting. And it is very dynamically shot. It's, it's very well made as much as I just have a hard time with subject matter. I was actually thinking about Spielberg again. Mm-hmm. I'm always thinking about Steven. <laughs> Somewhere in the back of my mind, there's a constant Steven Spielberg yeah. thing. You know, and I was thinking about something I read about Schindler's List, where he made choices to tone down what actually happened mm-hmm. in the concentration camps. And Steven was like, I've put enough in the movie that people will walk away and understand how horrible these people, how inhuman these people were. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a question I always have in my mind in movies like this, of what do you actually need to show and what is gratuitous? And I think this is at times on the other side of the line for me. I think in particular the scene of Little Zay and those those two small children who he ends up shooting in the foot. What does that really do for you? I mean, obviously it makes you very uncomfortable and that's the point, but is it yeah. like more than you need to express how difficult it is to live in this kind of world? And so like, that's a question I always have, but it's super well-made. Yeah. And again, it's showing you a part of the world and people you don't we usually don't see. don't always see, yeah. So I think there's Definitely. value to that as well. That's City of God. I'm glad that I watched it. I've been meaning to watch it for so many years mm-hmm. and I thought that it was incredibly well-made. On to our next of these collection of films, Whale Rider. Yes. Tell us about Whale Rider. Whale Rider is about a young girl. It takes place in New Zealand. She's born into a Maori tribe and her grandfather is the chief. And when she's born, she has a twin brother who dies. And essentially what it ends up meaning is their line has ended and it's very unclear who's going to take over a leadership of their tribe. And she can't because she's a woman. Sort of in protest, her father ends up naming her Paikia, which is the name of their originating ancestor. And she's rejected by her grandfather, who, as she ages, comes to love her, but still doesn't see her as someone who can take over a leadership of the tribe. And so the film is sort of about her finding a way to prove to her grandfather that both, you know, she has value. She's trying to essentially get him to love her, which is really, really sad. It's so painful. (laughs) And he keeps rejecting her, but also prove that she can be the leader of the tribe. He ends up starting a school for the firstborn boys to try to find another leader, and they continuously fail all the tests they give him that she is able to succeed at. In the end, she's called out to the whales, the ancestors, to come help her show her grandfather that she can lead, and the whales end up beaching themselves. And the tribe tried really hard to get the whales to go back into the ocean, and she's able to coax the lead whale back into the ocean, symbolically showing that, yes, this is the she way is forward. She is the whale rider. She is the whale rider. And her grandfather, of course, sees this. At first, it seems like maybe she's died doing this because she goes out to sea with this whale, and they go underwater, and she's in a coma. But she comes back, and they accept her. And it's just 
It's a really lovely story. I guess we mentioned it earlier. The lead is Keisha Castle-Hughes, who at the time was the youngest person nominated for a Best Actress Award. She was 13. I think she gives a, a really good performance. I think all the She's performances great. in this film are, yeah. are great. And yeah, again, right? A person and a type of people we don't usually get that to see on film. see on film, yeah. A place, a culture. Yeah. And I think thematically it really is about how like, expectations are the thief of joy. Her yeah. grandfather has so many expectations about the ways the things should be that he's, yes. his eyes are closed to possibilities. It's so hard to watch that part of it. I, I did. I loved this movie. I loved the, the people in it. But I all the way through was like, fuck her grandpa. <laughs> like yeah, this. I mean, fair. <laughs> it's so hard to watch because she's just trying to get his approval the whole way through. And he's just like, no, no, you can't. It's not for you. You're disrespecting our culture by even trying to do this. And it's mm -hmm. so awful because all she wants is for him to love her. And he does love her. That's the thing. He does yeah. love her, but he can't get around his preconceived notions mm -hmm. to just accept her as she is. And it's so hard. There's this incredible scene where he's sort of lost all hope because he's done his final test with the boys and none of them passed it. So he's just laying in bed depressed for days on end because he feels like he's failed at his mission and there's no coming back from it. And meanwhile, she has this school recital that she's wants him to come to. And so she invites him and she's like sure that he's going to come. He does end up getting dressed and trying to come, but this is the night when he finds all the whales. So he doesn't end up showing up at her event. But she gives this speech yes. at the event that is just for him. It's dedicated to him. Right. She won a speech contest for like the entire North Island too. So it's this big achievement. Yeah. The speech is a winner. It's just for him. She's sure he's going to be there. She gets up to give the speech and he's not there. And her performance in this scene is so, so incredible. Because she is really struggling to make her way through it. And she keeps having to like pull herself together and she's crying through the whole thing. But it's also so good. This scene is what got her the nomination oh, for yeah. the Academy Award because it's so goddamn good. That was incredible. Cliff Curtis, who plays her dad, is great. I've seen him in other stuff. Yeah. He's probably the only actor from this that I'd seen in other No, you've things. seen Rachel House in other things. She's the girlfriend of the younger oh, brother. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the cast is great. Yeah. And again, right, to the Mystic River discussion, this movie starts off with her mother dying and her twin brother dying and Cliff Curtis experiencing grief. And I'm in it. Yeah. I'm there with him. His oh, performance is so good. And immediately the grandfather also comes in and rejects her. It's so awful. Yeah. He's like, take that girl out of here. I need a moment with my grandson. And you're like, this is fucked up. And uh, you love the grandmother from the, the grandmother's beginning. so good. She she tells the baby, she's like, you say one word and I'm going to divorce him. And you're like, yeah, yeah granny. <laughs> and you're like, do it, granny. That guy sucks. <laughs> yeah, the grandmother is so lovely. It's sort of this fascinating familial situation because the father has gone on to have a successful art career and he's mostly not home. He's like no. traveling around Europe. It's clear that his grief has forced him to leave. He can't be around. He can't stay home. Just the ongoing disapproval of his father. Well, because his father had these very high expectations for him to be 
his heir and like he's kind of looking for the savior of their people which is yeah. a lot of expectation to have for anyone and so he has run away from this expectation and you're left being like why didn't you take your daughter this poor girl you've left her with the grandfather who's so disapproving but then there's this fascinating scene where he asks the daughter to come with him like it sucks to be here being around my dad is impossible i get that it's hard for you too what if you just come with me and she does come but she can't make it out of town they're driving by the ocean and she sees the whale and she's like i have to go home i have to go back Mm -hmm. (laughs) that part is devastating too because clearly he does really love his daughter and they just are at an impasse and cannot be together until finally at the end when all are united by you know her success he comes back with his his new girlfriend and he comes back with his pregnant girlfriend and they finish building the boat that he'd been meaning to build since he was a teenager i feel like the grandfather gets forgiven too easily but (laughs) well you know they do love everyone they all love each other understand the other thing i liked about this movie was the way they allow her to demonstrate her leadership like she does recover the whale's tooth that's a major moment Mm -hmm. but i also love the part where she wants to learn how to use the tayaha i think it's called which is the weapon yeah there's this staff weapon yeah and her uncle the younger brother who has also been emotionally terrorized by the grandfather Yeah. Well, and he's the younger brother, so you're never allowed to succeed at anything as the not firstborn. (laughs) He's, you know, just kind of loafing around. He's doing drugs with his girlfriend, Rachel House, yada, yada, yada. But she motivates him because he was a Taya champion. And then there's this great scene where after he's started to train her and he's kind of like got it it back together where he's running on the beach. He's gotten very heavy and his dad sees him and he's like, hey, dad. His dad's just like... (laughs) What, what is happening? Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I really like Rachel House in this movie as his girlfriend. Everyone's yeah. very sweet. And again, there's a lot of love within the family. Yes, definitely. But it's so hard with the grandfather's expectations. Oh, yeah. That was a heart wrencher. I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot, too. Okay, that one was lovely. Yeah. Next, we have Shattered Glass. What a great find this one was. This is a movie that you had seen. I saw it around the time that it came out and I was like, this is great. Yeah, but I had not seen it and didn't really know what it was. So I was delighted to watch it. This is a movie about a real life event that people might remember. But this journalist named Stephen Glass back at the end of the 90s is someone who was like a wunderkind journalist who wrote for all of these incredibly prestigious magazines, namely for the New Republic, which is they are constantly describing themselves as the in-flight magazine for Air Force One. Yes. And he was a journalist that wrote for it as like a 23 year old, which is kind of unheard of. Although they point out that like the average age of the staff at the time this happens was was like 26. 26, It's a bunch of young people. But he was this very successful journalist. And then in a huge scandal that's rocked the establishment, it came out that he was a fraud. And most of the stories that he had written for the New Republic and for other places were either entirely fabricated or contained a bunch of fictional things that he just made up. Fake sources, fake quotes, (laughs) all kinds of stuff. And he sort of just skated by on charm and confidence. (laughs) (laughs) And made everyone believe that he was great at his job and somehow got away with it for a while. Yeah, they talk through the fact-checking process at the magazine and it's there's a lot of steps to it. But 
I think for his stories in particular, they just rely on the notes. So it's still honor based. The story unravels pretty quickly the second someone else gets older. Because what ends up happening is he publishes this story about a hacker convention and this kid who gets hired by a big tech firm after he hacked them instead of them suing him because they just think it's easier. And Forbes Digital has probably been around for like no time because it's the late 90s. Yeah. Well, but part of what's making it possible for him to do this is that people are not relying on the internet as much. It's not as easy for people to fact check things as it is now. Right. So the editor at Forbes Digital calls in one of his staffers who covers hackers and he's like, why didn't you get this story? And it's very quickly unraveled. He starts to look into it and realizes that none of the things in the article can be verified at all. Right. He's like, I looked and this company has never been incorporated anywhere and there's no tax records. And he's doing really good journalism. Yeah, he's an actual journalist. Yeah. And so also at the uh, New Republic, the editor who's played by Hank Hazaria has just left. And they've installed a new editor-in-chief who's played by Peter Sarsgaard, and the staff doesn't like him. And he was never part of their, like, in-crowd. So this this movie is also very much about relationships and how they blind people to people's behavior. Yes. So they immediately turn on Peter Sarsgaard, Stephen Glass, and his pals. as like, oh, he's just out to get you. Oh, he never liked me. Oh, you know, he's just trying to get rid of everyone who was a, everyone who was a Mike Kelly person. He's just trying to oust. And so there's this narrative that he's spinning at the New Republic yeah. that this is a personal attack and not a huge scandal that's going to tank their publication, which is what yeah. it is. It's a lot of fun. It's so good. The cast is incredible. Interestingly, Stephen Glass is played by Hayden Christensen, who everyone will know from Star Wars prequel fame, <laughs> but maybe not from a lot of other things. And he's fantastic in it. His Stephen Glass is so interesting. The character has all of these bizarre quirks. It's interesting because the, I mean, he is basically a con artist. So the way he gets away with it is he's ingratiated himself with all these people. And like, he realizes that if he can be helpful and be like supportive of them, they all really rely on him and think of him as a friend and no one would even consider distrusting him mm-hmm. because he's their good friend, Stephen, who's been helping them out for all these years. And he, if they ever need anything, he's there for them. And, and the tension of it works so well. Like it was an interesting journey. I thought, because at first I was just sort of amazed at the audacity of this guy. Like you yeah. you sort of know what's coming, but as he goes along, you're like, I can't believe he's getting away with this. Like, this is incredible. It, the, the stuff he just says and you're like, wow, it's working. And then in the moment when it all unravels, like that phone call that he and Sarsgaard get on with the Forbes people, when it really is yeah. all coming apart and Steve Zahn is there being like, all right, could we get a phone number for this person? And what about this website? And this looks fake to me. And everything is just being questioned. And Stephen Glass, who always has answers for everything, starts to not have answers. That was when I was overwhelmed with cringe. Yeah. <laughs> and was like, this is very hard to watch. Everything is falling apart. But then by the end, when Peter Sarsgaard finally sticks it to him and you're like, yeah, take back your magazine, Sarsgaard, stand up for journalistic ethics. <laughs> <laughs> You're like back on board. So it was a whole, it was a ride for yeah. me, this one. The whole unraveling is great. So that phone call is great when Sarsgaard's like, you know what? We're just going to go. We're going to go to the hotel oh, where it happened. I love it. And it's so clear that he was never in these spaces and it doesn't make any sense. It's awesome because 
he always has answers. They ask for things. He's like, it's in my notes. It's in my notes. I'll bring you my notes. Over and over he does this through the movie. And then when Sarsgaard is like, well, let's just drive up there. Because he's like, we need to get some answers. They're going to publish a story about you tomorrow. Your career is going to be over. We need to get answers right, right now. <laughs> so we're driving up there. And it's interesting to see him confronted with someone who is like, let's go do real journalism. <laughs> because he's like, no, no, why would we go up there? We can't go up there. Yeah. And you're like, this is what journalists do, Stephen Glass. They go to the place and they interview the people. And so that is very quickly dismantling his entire thing. And you're just sort of like, how did he get away with it? People just, just trusted him because they liked him. That's how con yeah. work. Yeah. But then we haven't mentioned he has this super bizarre quirk where whenever any tension arises, he says to the people, are you mad at me? Yeah. <laughs> Which is not a thing adult people normally say to each other. <laughs> in the workplace in particular. It's a very interesting technique because it immediately brings things back to their interpersonal relationship of like, yeah, but we're friends. And it's great at the end because he does that to Peter Sarsgaard and he's like, stop doing it. Yes. I'm not your friend. Yes. Sarsgaard's so good. It's really good. Yeah. And then we also talked about before that there's this moment where you think yeah. the movie's going to make an even darker turn. So he's fired Stephen and asked him to leave. And he's still in the building kind of going through all the magazines and all the articles he published. Well, to be like, because... He's had this realization. At first, you think it's just he's like made a mistake on this one story. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, okay, maybe he didn't make a mistake. Maybe he made up this one story. And then Sarsgaard has this realization of if he did this on one story, did he do it on others? And he starts to pull all the old editions yeah. off the wall and reread all of his stories and realize the extent of what has happened. Right. So he had forced him to leave the building and leave his key behind. And he's still in the building when you hear that the security guard has let him in because he's obviously told the security guard like, oh, I forgot my key. Yep. And he comes up to Peter Sarsgaard and he's like, kind of similarly to the are you mad at me of trying to garner sympathy. He's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I might hurt myself. I could do anything. Yeah, I can't can be just, alone right now. Can you just take me to the airport, please? And Sarsgaard is like, I am not going anywhere with you. And it does feel this very sinister of like, is he going to hurt him? What's going to yeah, happen? Well, because you're like, this guy is the right level of something is wrong with him where you're like, this could take a dark turn. Yeah. Everything is unraveled. His world has just fallen apart. He could be violent. Right. You don't know what's going to happen. And you're like, thank you for being so smart, Peter Sarsgaard, and not going with him. And then he has a wonderful confrontation scene too with Chloe Sevigny and like the it's so good um, foyer of their building where she's confronting him. It's like, Stephen called me and he said you were being terrible to him. And he has yeah. to reinforce like, you are a journalist. I know you're a good journalist. This is not yeah. personal. If he wasn't your friend, what would you do? And he's like, you don't understand how fucked we all are. Like every one of us is going to have to go re-research every one of his pieces. Stephen has told you some sob story, but that's not what's going on. This is what's going on. And so then when he comes into the office on Monday, luckily everyone has come around and understood what is happening. But man, oh man. Yeah. I find it to be an effective thriller. I'm thrilled by it. I was thrilled. It's great. Okay. On to the next. Now, this is one that you had seen that mm -hmm. I had not seen before and you recommended. The Station Agent. Tell me what The Station yeah. Agent is about. The Station Agent is the probably the first movie I ever saw Peter Dinklage in, where I initially fell in love with him. It is a movie written and directed by Tom McCarthy of Spotlight fame. And it's about these three lonely strangers, basically. So Peter Dinklage is this kind of misanthrope guy who loves trains he has one friend he works at a shop with him making train models and then that friend dies and leaves him this property that is a train depot in a rural part of new jersey 
And so he's been left this property and he really just wants to be left alone. So he's like, property in the middle of nowhere? Sounds great. (laughs) I'm going to move out there. And then he immediately is confronted with this character played by Bobby Cannavale, who is bubbly and friendly and just wants to hang out with people. And he's in town taking care of his sick dad who has this mobile coffee food truck that he happens to be parking right outside of the depot. So every day, Peter Dinklage is confronted with Bobby Cannavale, who's like, ooh, a stranger, someone to be friends with. And then there's a third person in their trio who's played by Patricia Clarkson. She is someone whose son died a couple of years ago, and she's still recovering from the trauma of it. And she's an artist. She just paints and wants to be alone and try to work through her feelings about her son. And then she ends up butting up against them because two times on the first day that she... (laughs) Yeah. he's in town she accidentally sort of drives peter dinklage off the road and so she's trying to make it up to him and ends up bringing him a bottle of bourbon and they start their kind of friendship at first neither of them really wants to be friends with anyone but because bobby cannavale knows both of them he's really trying to engineer this friendship yeah. for the three of them because he wants someone to hang out with the three of them do end up becoming friends but there's a point where patricia clarkson Something happens with her husband coming back to town. She finds out that he's sort of moving on with his life Mm -hmm. and she has this kind of like relapse. (laughs) She was doing okay and now she's not doing as well and she ends up nearly overdosing on some medication, has to go into a hospital and she's pushed the guys away in in the intervening time. But then in her recovery, they're the ones who sort of get her out of the hospital and they all realize how nice it is to have human connection. Yeah. And it's lovely. What it's a, a lovely really nice story. Movie. What are your thoughts? Because you hadn't seen it before. I had not. I liked it. So again, I can like a movie about lonely people who find connection. I hadn't thought so much about how similar in theme this movie was to Lost in Translation until I was rewatching it yeah. the other day. And then I was like, you know what? Yeah. And I mean, I liked all the performances. I have to say, so he inherits, right, the the train depot from his previous co-worker. But there's a little section prior to that where they also go mm-hmm. and watch train spotting videos that people narrate in person. And the scene with the guy narrating his train spotting video is so funny. It's He's incredible. Like, Here I was in Canada, Canada, cold, snow. The train is moving forward, so the smoke is coming backwards. And now we're in a tunnel and it's dark, dark, tunnel, dark. And now <laughs> we're out like- of the tunnel. The most perfect parody of what you imagine people who go watch videos of trains (laughs) would be like. And then a Dinklage and his friend share this moment of eye contact over it. And they're like, wow. It's so funny. (laughs) This guy. It made me laugh a lot. But it was really funny. (laughs) Yeah, I I liked all the characters. I liked their characterization. I think it makes sense how these characters come together. I really like Bobby Cannavale in this as this overly friendly guy always loved Bobby Cannavale and everything he's ever been in. But yeah, it's just a great, intimate little character piece. (laughs) And it makes you feel warm and happy. I'd recommend it to people. Oh, man. I love that movie. Okay. The last movie worth mentioning here, I think, is Kill Bill Volume 1. The fourth film of Quentin Tarantino, as he so helpfully tells you at the beginning of it. And yeah, it was interesting that you said that City of God structurally reminded you of Tarantino because it is the exact structure of Kill Bill with chapters that are not sequential and giving you titles of the chapters and like (laughs) telling you this is a structured story. So that was similar. A lot of people have probably seen it. It's the first half of his Kill Bill 
what do you call a, a pair of movies? Duology. A duology. That is a revenge story. Uma Thurman plays a character called The Bride, who was a member of an assassin squad, but at a certain point was trying to get married and leave the life and was murdered along with her entire bridal party at her wedding by the assassin squad. She is the only one who didn't die, but she was left in a coma for four years. And when she finally wakes up, she decides she needs to take revenge on all the people responsible for killing her groom and everyone she knew. And she thinks killing her baby. And so she just has this hit list and she's going through it one at a time, killing the people. So yeah, it's the first half of the story. You don't get the resolution, but it's super stylish in the way that Tarantino movies always are. If you are a fan of this type of movie, it's a very specific reference to this style of like martial art film. Mm. And it's stylish and fun and cool to look at. Do you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, I agree with all that. It's very stylish. It's obviously well shot. It's not my favorite Tarantino. Obviously, it's half a story, which like, I don't know if that's yeah. a complaint, but it doesn't have too much of a plot because it really is just her going from person to person and, and fighting. And so I think your mileage is just going to kind of vary with sure. that. Yeah. I haven't rewatched the second part in a while. I think I like the second part more than the first part, mm-hmm. but Part of that is that you get the conclusion right. to the story, which is nice. But there's a ton of, at this point, iconic imagery from both of them. Like Uma's character's yellow suit now yes. is super famous. And just the imagery of the fight with the crazy 88s is super yeah. relevant. We didn't mention it before, but when we talk about cultural relevance with films mm-hmm. in terms of what should have been nominated, I think of all the ones that were left off their list, I think this is probably the one with the most cultural relevance at this point and it's interesting for it to not have gotten any nominations at all even for technical Technical things things, yeah if the category we've been lobbying for for years about stunt coordination had been a category this would have been a shoo-in oh absolutely that's fair that's (laughs) okay where do we find ourselves so i mean you know we asked what should have won I'm still fine with the Lord of the Rings winning. I'm still fine with it getting its victory lap. We talked about it. I love it. I'm I'm more than happy for it to win. I think the rest of the nominees, I mean, I, I'm fine with Master and Commander being nominated yeah. as well. But the other but three nominees. I wouldn't mind replacing the other three with some of these other five that we just talked about. That's where I'm at. I'm less enthusiastic about Lord of the Rings, but I get it. I'm fine with it. I understand people wanting to give it its victory lap award. But yeah, other than Master and Commander, which I was very pleasantly surprised by, I was mostly unenthused by the nominees this year. But not unenthused by all of our supplementary viewing. I had a great time with all the supplementary viewing. Yeah. So it's not like there weren't any good movies in 2003. I don't know. I don't have a strong answer for what should have won because, again, I'm, I'm fine with Lord of the Rings, though. It's not my favorite. Yeah. Well, which of um, these movies is just your personal favorite if you had to pick one? Whoo, that ain't easy. Gotcha. Honestly, maybe The Station Agent. Okay. But I did enjoy all of these. And honestly, the biggest, I wasn't surprised that I loved Whale Rider because I'd heard great stuff about Whale, mm. Whale Rider. I was delighted to find out about Shattered Glass. Like, I didn't know anything about that, and I had a great time watching it. So that was a fun surprise movie for me. All right. So overall, did the Oscars get it wrong? I guess not. No. But, I mean, they got the nominees wrong. They did. So there's that. 
Yeah. Let's take it over to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner. Jake Gyllenhaal Shockingly, though he was a working actor at this point in his career, he had nothing to offer us in 2003. He was spending the whole year filming The Day After Tomorrow, I guess. So what do we think he should have been in this year? I also had a really hard time with this. We're just sticking to the nominees because I don't really want to sub out anyone in Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like there's not enough to a lot of the other roles and i don't think putting him in master and commander is the right move but like i don't want him to be in mystic river no and i don't want him to be in sea biscuit no i think he could have done a great job in shattered glass but i'd hate to take yeah. hayden christensen's one good role his away from one him. good role <laughs> let's not do that to hayden christensen i feel bad about that he could have been one of the other journalists but again the cast of that is is stellar top to bottom so yeah. i i don't want to change it yeah, I don't know. There's not a standout perfect role for him this year, I don't think. Maybe there was a reason he was on break. Yeah, there just wasn't anything for him to do this year. He read all the scripts and he said, none of this is for me. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I guess we'll leave Jake to his break year. And let's do our little conclusions. Do we see ourselves coming back to any of these movies? Yeah, I mean, I'll watch Lord of the Rings again. I I have a fine time watching those movies. I'd watch Whale Rider again. I'd certainly watch Shattered Glass again. I'd watch The Station Agent again. I probably wouldn't watch City of God again. It's just, it's a really it's, tough It's a tough one. Experience. It's not really like popcorn yeah, pop it on. that you want to see over and over. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of stuff I would yeah. revisit. Yes to all of that, other than Lord of the Rings, which I've already made my opinions clear yeah. about. And I wouldn't mind rewatching Master and Commander sometime. So I had an all right time with most of the movies that we talked about this year have we learned anything about what makes the best picture i mean lord of the rings obviously fits into sort of like the epic filmmaking the technical achievement that all makes sense Mm -hmm. i I, the thing i thought about too with some of these other nominees is their name directors like there's name people making these movies like mystic rivers clint eastwood and i know it was like sophia coppola's second movie but she's a coppola right yeah whereas you know I don't know that anyone knew who Nikki Cara was at the time that she made Whale Rider. So are we going to nominate her? Are we going to nominate? I don't even know who directed Shattered Glass. I forgot to look it up. (laughs) Who did direct Shattered Glass? You know, I wonder if some of these things get in because they're just like, oh, yeah, Clint Eastwood movie. We could probably not. Written and directed by Billy Ray. Okay, Billy Ray. Who did Captain Phillips and Richard Jewell. He's, yeah. Some stuff. But, you know, he's not Clint Eastwood. Yeah, I mean, you're right that definitely having a name director helps you with your nomination process. I don't know. I, I just felt like other than Lost in Translation, which was definitely their effort at a more indie feeling thing to nominate, the rest of the movies are very much expected. The kind of sort of stodgy <laughs> sort of things that you'd imagine the Academy would choose. And, you know, like some of them are very heartwarming and one's a crime drama and you're like, yep, yep. Yep, this feels like I mm-hmm. even though I didn't have a great time watching them, I was not surprised by the nominees. So I don't know. I guess we've learned that the Academy never surprises you. <laughs> Bummer. Bummer. To our patterns, angry white guys this year. Certainly in Mystic River. Oh yeah, that's for sure. Surprisingly uh, not angry guys in Master and Commander. No, they're lovely. Toxic masculinity whom? Not in this film. Biopics. There's a biopic of a horse. Yeah. I was like, there are no biopics. You're right. The horse is a biopic. 
biopic of a horse and then original ideas lost in translation book lost in translation i think is original master and commander book mystic river is a book real thing mystic river book all right we got one one out of five is pretty bad and yet seems to be the usual rate it really does i think we were discovering that most things are adaptations Mm mm-hmm Okay, that should about do it for us. But what are we talking about next time? Next time, we are doing the 87th Academy Awards, or the films of 2014. The nominees were American Sniper, Birdman, or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, Boyhood, The Grand Budapest Hotel, The Imitation Game, Selma, The Theory of Everything, and Whiplash. Should be an interesting one. I don't want to spoil too much, but... If you liked our bracket episode of 1939, we've taken bracketing and tournament style episodes to the next level for this one. Yes, we are going to do something a little different from our previous bracket episode. We're we're experimenting with the form, people. We can't be tied down. Rules don't apply to us. But I think we should probably leave it at that. Yeah. In the meantime, if you have thoughts about any of these movies we've talked about, or even though we talked about a million movies this time, if you feel like we missed something, do let us know. We can be reached at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. New episodes of the pod come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 